Welcome back, Richard. It's good to see you this morning. Morning, Bernie. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. And, uh, you know, the last few weeks, we have been talking about schools. We've been talking right. about some of our concerns and issues and some of the problems that have been um, percolating and just growing with schools. And, and we're going to continue that conversation today because, you know, just as we've been talking about this, of course, some new reports come out just within this past week about uh, just really demonstrating the magnitude of some of the concerns and problems that we're facing. Right. Yeah. And you're referring to the the um, data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know what NAEP is, um, it's a congressionally mandated large scale assessment um, that tests students in grades four and eight in math, reading, and science. And um, it was last administered, it's administered each year in the fall of 2022. And now all those data, and this is this is the only assessment that is given nationwide. Right. Uh, different states have their assessments, so it's hard to compare Florida students to Georgia students because right. they may be testing different things. The national, the value of NAEP is the same test as given to kids no matter where they live, okay, right. in grades four and eight. And what they found, not surprisingly, is that these are the lowest scores we've seen in, in a decade or more. Um, the last time math scores were this, um, were this low was in 1990, and in, in reading it was 2004. So we're talking about huge right. Um, time span. I mean, actually, in education, that's a long time, 1990. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you, you know, o over 30 years. Um, yeah, generation. And, and, you know, almost 20 years for, for reading. And, you know, so we're going to talk about some of this. And, you know, I think it's important that we recognize that, you know, um, as we look at the trends of some of this data, it, right. it's not necessarily as though it, it everything was increasing and doing really well and then all of a sudden we went off a cliff um, with the pandemic with the pandemic yeah right. that, that's, that's right. not really the way that it suggests this this trend actually began before the trend the the, the pandemic before that's we right the, the value of these scores what they what they tell us is this decline began before the pandemic so right. Whatever factors were at play were at play before the pandemic. Granted, the pandemic made it worse. Right. Uh, Shine a brighter light on the problems. Right. But all the problems existed long before uh, the pandemic hit. Okay. And we can see this across time. In the 1980s, we had a nation at risk, which said, you know, we're 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 falling behind all other countries. In the 1990s, it was a national reading panel that said. If kids aren't reading by the at grade level by the end of third grade, they're never going to catch up. And then in 2000, we have no child left behind, which and the idea was by the title, we're going to get every kid reading at grade level by the end of third grade. So this effort to improve American education didn't begin with the pandemic. This started a long time ago. Yeah. But there's something about this decline because the decline started before the pandemic. Right. And that, that's what's uh, so these data suggest that in the past decade, at least in the past decade before the pandemic, 
A, we haven't improved educational outcomes for all students, which mm-hmm. was one of our goals. And the second thing is we never closed the achievement gap. That's what No Child Left Behind was designed to do, was to close the achievement gap to get get all these kids up to grade level. We haven't done, we've done neither of those things over the past decade. Right. And and so, you know, so there, there was a, the, the initial article that came out earlier um, this past week and then a, a more recent article within the last day or so um, was an article that came out and said, kind of went into the data a little bit more um, from these tests. And it suggests that reading scores declined in at least 30 states and right. right. mm-hmm. math scores declined almost everywhere um, between 2019 and 2022. Right. Um, now, again, you know, during this time frame, we have a lot of adjustments and shifts happening in education leading up to 2019. We have all of the issues related to, we've, we've talked before about like school choice and magnet schools and some of those kinds of things. Um, you know, then the pandemic in 2020, uh, that, as you said a moment ago, it exacerbated it. We kind of put a very bright spotlight on the, mm-hmm. on the issue. But this has been going on. And and I think sort of as, as you were alluding to a moment ago, this the achievement gap is really becoming much more exaggerated, especially in particular areas where we have maybe some economic disadvantage and some other socioeconomic issues. Right. Yeah. So we we have the problem of declining test scores and and we all acknowledge that there's a problem. We have a problem somewhere in our educational system. But um, I think where, where we would like to begin our discussion is with it's not just public schools that are in trouble. Right. Uh, there are many charter schools closing. There are many charter schools that have huge problems. There are many private schools that have problems. Mm-hmm. So the problem with education is not just public schools. We like to bash public schools because it's an easy target. Right. But it's more than just public schools. And the second thing is, is there's no simple solution for right. educational problems. Right. There never has been a simple solution for educational problems. In our country, we try to educate all children. That's what compulsory education is, is that every kid goes to school until at least age 16. That's no easy task. Many countries don't try to do that because it's not an easy task. Right. So we're, we're talking about these issues and suddenly this article pops up that says America's educational system is failing, but a growing school choice movement believes it has the solution. I want to pause there for a moment. When I read this, I thought of that Arby's commercial that the guy with the very deep voice says, we have the meat, we have the the solution. So around the country, school choice has been touted as the solution for educational problems. And in our state, many other states, uh, we are going to give every K-12 student in the state of Florida an eight thousand dollar check to go to school wherever they want. Okay, right. that, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna use we're gonna solve educational problems by giving parents a choice of of what school they want to send their child to or what kind of education they want to give their child. So if you want to keep your child in new homeschooling, you can take your eight thousand dollars and you can homeschool your child. Okay. The arguments they use there's three arguments that they use, and this is I think where we want to warn people. 
school school choice sounds good. When people talk about it, especially people running for office, talk about school choice, they make it sound so good. But these statements, school choice makes it possible for all students, regardless of economic background, to get an education that matches their needs and interests. Sounds great. Not true. Right. Okay. Because we're going to have students who are very difficult to be with, either because of violent behavior or because of lack of motivation or because of other handicapping conditions. You're not going to have a place for all students. Well, I, I think it's also important to to say that you know if you you can have a city such as the one that we live in, where there are like let's just say four or five high performing really good quality elementary schools. Right. Let's just say. Um, well, there are thousands of elementary school age students. And right. and if you, you know, as it says, regardless of economic background, um, parents have the school choice gives the parents the opportunity to allow their students to get an education that matches their needs and interests. Mm-hmm. The, the, there are not enough spaces in, in some right. schools Right. Especially, you know, certainly the the high high performing schools. There's just not enough spaces for every student. That's right, and we can create magnet schools, charter schools, and private schools that outperform everybody in the district, only because they get to choose which students attend that school. Right. If you let every student in your district come into your school you're going to have a range of learning and behavior problems. If you eliminate all them, then you have this select group of students. They're going to do just fine as they have throughout history. Okay. So to say that all students will have a choice is not true. All students will not have a choice. Some students will have a choice. Also, they make the statement, charter schools generally outperform traditional public schools. Not true. That is... Some charter schools do, and some don't. Many charter schools have closed. Many charter schools are falling way behind. Read Diane Ravitch. She'll give you the data on these things. The charter schools are are not the solution. They're not outperforming. They are in some cases, but they are in some cases if the charter school is allowed to accept only certain students or retain certain certain students. Right. Right. Yeah, I think it's important to say that the the performance of the charter school depends on the school's charter. The school, the charter means that the the school has a particular purpose. You know, charter schools were designed to be sort of exploratory, experimental centers Mm -hmm. where we're trying innovative and new things. And so if the charter says, you know, hey, we're going to take students who, um, you know, we're only going to take students who are diagnosed with autism. Mm -hmm. That's not, you know, that it may be great and, and really good for students with autism, but it is not going to be a school that competes on this NAEP, um, you know, nationwide data. It's not going to be considered a high academic performance school because that's, that's not right. the focus of the school. So right. to say that charter schools, you know, that that's the that charter schools are the answer just just isn't the case. Yeah. Now, having said that. There are charter schools. There's one here in our in our city. They're doing a fabulous job. Um, the, that, the Achievement Academy. They're doing a fabulous job with kids who have a history of struggling in typical public schools. 
I cannot sing their praises loudly enough because they've taken these very difficult students that we will work with them and we will deal with them mm-hmm. and we'll we'll do our best to educate them. I have nothing but good things to say about them. But this third statement, the NAEP, this National Assessment of Educational Progress, showed that as a nation, as a nationwide group, Catholic schools lost less ground during the pandemic than public schools. Maybe they did, but let's think about what a Catholic school is and does. These are very select group of students. They may not have had to close the... If you have a single Catholic school, it's much easier to manage the pandemic in a single school than it is to manage it in a school district. Remember, our administrators... We're dealing with the pandemic at a district-wide level. We're talking about 100,000 students scattered across 150 schools. Very different than dealing with one school, whether it's Catholic, Protestant, I don't care what, what the difference right. doesn't matter. It's a very, very different situation. And if you, again, if you have a select group of students, it's much easier to manage their educational losses. And, and, and I think that it's really important to 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 the the sort of the um, elephant in the room is that there's no doubt. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that the population of students in Catholic schools are is very different than the populations of students in public schools. That's right. That's right. So, they're so they're the, avail- the availability of resources both at home and at school right. is very different than those than what's available in public school students. That's right. And so when when I hear these arguments about choice, parental choice will solve the problem. The reason it will not is because these arguments that are presented, these kinds of arguments, are based on the assumption that all students are the same. Right. That all you have to do is give students a choice and everybody will prosper. Well, that's not the case. All students are not the same. There are students coming into our schools with all kinds of deficits, weaknesses, behaviors. Um, They're not all equal. So to offer school choice is based on the assumption that all kids are the same and all kids are not the same. Well, and it also is based on the assumption that all students truly have access to the same resources. And again, that's just not the case. And so, you know, know, so while they're trying to tout this idea that school choice is the answer, as we've said many times, it seems over the past few months with different topics, nothing is as simple (laughs) as it may seem. You know, these are complex issues that require complex solutions. And so, you know, there was a there was another article that came out and, and, and the link to all these articles will be in the show notes. But um, another article from the New York Times that that suggests that, you know, parents really don't understand how far behind their kids are in school right now That's um, right. and the effects that the pandemic had. But again, as we've said, you know, th- th- this trend began even before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's not just parents. I mean, as a country, nobody really well, teachers understand right. uh, if you're involved in the school system. You, you understand how far behind these kids are. 
And this article makes two points that I think are relevant to our discussion. The first point is that kids are much farther behind than anybody realizes. And second, the pandemic, though it caught the pandemic caused problems, it caused upheaval, caused disruptions. But it's not just what was happening in schools that explains the effect of the pandemic. The pandemic had a complex, multifaceted effect that we're just beginning to understand. Now, this article comes from research done by this group. It's a group of uh, researchers from Dartmouth and Stanford and Johns Hopkins. Um, and it's data from 7,800 communities in 41 states. So it's a, it's a huge sample uh, nationwide. And it looked at different geographic regions to try to figure out just what the effect of the pandemic was. Well, now, and, I, and I think that that's that part is really important because this this first set of data that mm. they have we have here is from before the pandemic. That's right. So that's right. You know, their their data suggests that in 2019, again mm. before the pandemic, students in the poorest 10 percent of districts scored one and a half years behind the national average. Right, national average. The national average, and and this is this one is key but they were four years behind students in the richest 10% of districts. Before the pandemic. This was all before the pandemic. That's right. So this gap, this achievement gap existed long. I, when I see four years behind, Bernie, that's mind boggling. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean that's, that's high school. That's a, that is an entire high school education. Okay. And so all of the, uh, Jonathan Kozol wrote a book years, decades ago called Savage Inequality. And this Great is what book. he was talking about, that from district to district, depending on the tax base and the wealth and the education of the, of the parents, you have these inequalities baked into the system. Okay, right. But even with that, with the pandemic, what these researchers learned was that within each district, test scores declined for all the students in that district not just the poor, not just the minorities, they declined for everybody. So there was something about your geographic location mm -hmm. that also affected a uh, test scores or student progress or how far behind you were, okay? And there were things like the obvious things, the amount of time that schools were closed. Yeah. If, if, you have the, if you have a single private school and you were able to open in the fall of 2020, you had less educational loss than if you couldn't open your school. Mm -hmm. um, second, the places where COVID deaths were higher, mm -hmm. the COVID deaths were high, those students struggled more. Um, in communities where adults reported more depression and anxiety, but also where daily routines were most significantly restricted. In some places, in some places in the country, routines were really really disrupted. I mean, you think of rural areas or dense urban areas where kids were sent home and didn't have internet access, okay? Those were major disruptions. Didn't happen everywhere. Uh, we have the advantage of having high-speed internet in our homes around here. Not all cities have that or had that in 2019, 2020. Right, a absolutely. Now, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what happens when we can look at data from, from other countries when it comes to this like for example we, we know that china yeah. we know that china 
like China really locked down. They really uh, locked down. Right. And it would be interesting. It'll be interesting to see once some data comes out from there to see if it had the same effect right. um, on, on their students. But right. you know, I, I think it is important to say here because I can I can hear the the masses. Uh, screaming that, well, this is why we shouldn't have gone to quarantine. This is why we shouldn't have closed things. There, there, there is sufficient evidence to suggest that closing and and doing the making the decisions that we made during the pandemic were the were, were appropriate decisions to make. That's right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the issue is, um, you know, we, we can't go back and we can't change the past, but there are some things that we have to recognize. And we have to adjust. Right. And we're going to talk about some of that in just a minute. But right. we, we have to go move beyond this notion of we just have to get back and do everything like we were doing in 2019 and everything will be just fine. <laughs> we're in a very different place than we were in 2019. And we can't just go back to, you know, what was normal and 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 think that everything is going to be fine. We, right. we live in a different world now. That's right. We're we're. Students have already picked up the pace they had when they left. The problem is we don't have a lot of programs to to fill in the gaps that they missed. Right. They've they've returned to school and they've returned to their prior pace of learning. That's clear. What isn't happening is that we're not, what we have to do is we also have to close the gaps in their background for all that time that they missed. Now, there's one other difference. Um, We talk about, COVID deaths and disruptions and all that. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing that these authors found, and that is that in communities where voting rates were high and they had a high census response, these are communities what sociologists call institutional trust. Mm-hmm. You trust your institutions. And in those districts, the school closures were less harmful. So it didn't matter that the schools closed because it was institutional trust. And what worries me today is that while we're trying to rebuild and catch kids up, we have all these people out there bashing public schools, bashing teachers, taking teachers to court, creating chaos, book bans, what we are and are not allowed to say. All this noise is going on, which destroys trust in the institution at a time when we should be building trust and working together to catch all these students up. And instead we have all this noise that is creating chaos and is getting in the way of progress. Right. Yeah. I I think it's really, it's really scary and, and difficult to anticipate and predict what's, what's going to come of this, um, you know, I, I I hate to use the word fear mongering, but that, that yeah. is what it is. Um, where we are being conditioned and encouraged to fear and distrust and and to almost loathe the government, um, right. the government that you know really is is here to protect us and to help us and to provide resources for us that we couldn't otherwise afford and provide it to ourselves. Right. You know, but yet we're being encouraged and, and reminded quite frequently how dangerous and destructive and, and you know, problematic the government is and, and people who are in the government, how, you know, how dangerous they are. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. That idea of institutional trust is so important because when you believe that those 
overarching systems have your best interest in mind. If you trust them to, to provide what you need and to, you know, make available what needs to be available, the amount of stress and the amount of, um, you know, the, just the, the overall negative influence of some of these major events like the pandemic and, and things like that are going to have less of an influence on us. Uh, but that's not the world that we live in right now. That's right. That's right. And when when I hear a single individual, which we've heard for the past 10 years or so, um, the FBI is no good. The Justice Department is crooked. Um, the Homeland Security should be disbanded. The Department of Education should be disbanded. Where do we put our trust? In a single individual? No, thank you. I'm not interested in replacing the FBI with Donald Trump or anybody else. I don't want any single individual. I'm not going to put my faith in a single individual. Right. I will put my faith in the institutions because they know how to do this. They do right. it well. Um, and so um, we have to have institutional trust. And if we keep destroying the institutions, we're not going to have, we're not going to be able to solve these complex problems. Okay? Yeah. So the federal government in its wisdom and the only entity with enough money, provided $190 billion to help districts catch up. So there's money there to do this. Yeah. What we're learning is that the hardest hit communities, um, cities like New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is, there's Yale to New Haven, Connecticut. They would have to teach, and this is the struggle that teachers are having and why it is heartbreaking for teachers. They would have to teach 150% of a typical year's worth of material for three years just to catch up. Right. That's, uh, it's, this money's going to run out in 2024. Right. So the money's going to run out before we catch all these students up. Before uh, we absolutely. Up. And it's, you know, and, and teachers know that because teachers know how far behind students are and they know that, you know, we talk about being students being behind and we think sometimes naively that, okay, well, we just need to keep pushing them. What push them. think about what being behind means. If, if you're a, if you're a high school sophomore and you're right. a year and a half behind, let's just say that that year and a half behind includes algebra one. <laughs> right. Yet you're going to be expected to do geometry, then algebra two and, and so on. If you're missing that, if you're behind, mm -hmm. what that means is that there are gaps, there are um, there there are pits in your educational history where there is missing knowledge. There, there you don't know how to do some things that you need to do to do the next thing. You know, I taught I taught algebra one, <clears throat> and the end of the course is the most complicated. Right. It's the most difficult. The, the first half of algebra one is easy. It's right. balancing equations and you get the basics. It's at the end of the course where the really difficult stuff is. Right. Every ninth grader <clears throat> missed that. Right. Then they're going to take plain geometry and then they're going to take algebra two without the benefit of the most difficult material in algebra one. Right. Okay. Take kids who fourth and fifth grade where you learn fractions and division and you know, especially fraction does, you don't kind of learn fractions. You, you can't learn 80% of, you either know it or you don't know it. Okay? Right. And so if you missed 
all those lessons in fifth grade on fractions, decimals, and percents, your teachers in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade are going to expect you to have that background that you don't have. You, right. you kind of learn fractions. No, you either did or you didn't. Right. Okay. So we need to we need to be supporting teachers. We need to be supporting schools. We, we need and to institutions. Stop, right, and we we have to stop this this use of intimidation, this this demeaning and demoralizing and and just demonizing of this system that is in place that look that educated all of us let's not forget that the teachers that are teaching our kids are are the same teachers that that taught us and and got us to where we are um they they taught us the same kinds of things um sure there are some things happening in society and there's some social issues that are present now that weren't present you know 30 years ago but 30 years ago, there were things that were present that kids don't deal with now. There is not a student in, in the United States right now that is doing, you know, that, that's running drills just in case there's a, a nuclear attack from Cuba. Right. It's not happening right now. You know, that, but that was something that was a regular occurrence when duck we were in cover. <laughs> duck in cover, right. Um, yeah. So it, it is very different now than it was then. But teachers are doing the same job. They're still working with the goal of making sure that students know what they need to know, that they build these fundamental and basic skills that they're going to need for the rest of their academic career, for the rest of their life. And it's not just the skills. It's the way of thinking. You know, how do you think about these things? Um, You know, you, you mentioned balancing equations. You know, yeah, there, there, are, there are many of us who, who grew up and we never have to balance an equation after we finish algebra two, you know, in, in high school. However, the way of thinking that got you to be able to balance that equation is a skill that you'll use the rest of your life. That's right. Right. Trust your teachers. Trust that the institution is there for the good and that it's not this evil, um, scary thing that we have to be worried about. You know, our elected officials, senators, representatives who have Ivy League educations, who are now bashing the institutions. And you're absolutely right. They were educated. They were educated in this system. Right. right? And they have Ivy League law school educations. Right. They came through the very system that now is so bad. Okay. so what we want to say is we need to be supporting teachers and schools, and we need to regain institutional trust. Right. Instead, we're intimidating them. The, you know, school board meetings have become circuses, and teachers are being sued, and teachers are being fired for showing a movie, and mm-hmm. being fired for talking about topics that they're not supposed, to, they're not allowed to talk about anymore. Instead of supporting teachers and regaining institutional trust. We are intimidating them. We're challenging them. We're threatening them. I mean, there are people quitting because they're being threatened. Their lives are being threatened. And we're passing laws that uh, that outlaw uh, discussions about gender and emotions and race and other topics. Uh, this is not the time. Um, this is a time for leadership. What all these articles are saying is that we have to work together to build institutional trust to get these kids caught up. We have a huge obligation here. And this is a time for leadership, not punishment. And so for elected officials to build their um, 
political career on bashing and criticizing and, and going after um, educational institutions, um, it's all wrong. Um, we, we need to be working together to fix the problems. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for today. We will, you better believe we'll be um, on this and keep talking about this issue because, um, well, you know, the next school year starts in a few months. So that's right. There there just is no simple solution for this. I mean, people say, well, we should have prayer in schools or we we should have prayer in schools and everything. Or we should start paddling kids again. Or we should put, you know, there is no single simple solution for the challenges facing education, all education, not just public education, all education. Absolutely. All right. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid.